as we begin this morning, I'd like you to take just a minute or two to think about something and to turn to a person or two around you. I'd like you to think about what it looks like to be devoted to something. Can you describe a person or a situation where you look at it and you go, oh, they're really devoted to that. So what, how can you describe someone who is devoted to something? It could be any area, any field, any type of devotion. Take a minute or so or two to turn to one or two around you and talk about that. Okay, if you'll wrap those circles up. Since the 1st of January, we've been engaged in the New Testament letter of Colossians. We've been engaged in 40 days of prayer, and we are learning how to pray biblically. Uh, We've learned, for instance, through Colossians to pray that believers will live worthy and God-pleasing lives. We've learned to pray that believers will share the riches in Christ and the glory of Christ with others, warning them and and working through God's power to help them mature in their faith. We've learned to pray that believers will continue to live their lives closely connected to Christ rather than trying to fulfill human rules. We've learned to pray that believers will set their priorities on eternal matters and allow the life of Christ to flow through every area and to do it together. We've learned to pray that believers will please God by the way they relate to their families and to others. And now today, from Colossians chapter 4, We're going to learn to pray that believers, and specifically our church, will be devoted to prayer. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning, Colossians chapter 4? The context of this section that we're about to read is this is where Paul is wrapping up. He's the author, the Apostle Paul. He's wrapping up the letter by giving them commands about prayer and about mission. And he's sending his final greetings to the church. Colossians 4.2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And then we skip down to verse 12, um, which you have said so well, all wonderfully, especially this section over here. (laughs) Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God 
mature and fully assured. <laughs> this is the Word of God. You may be seated. Well, how do we pray for believers in our church? First, we're going to give you three ways to pray today. First, pray that our lives in church will be marked by devotion to prayer. We start there in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, the way this is worded in the original, it puts to prayer first in the sentence. So it reads, to prayer, devote yourself. And that's what the original language that the New Testament was written in can do. It, words get moved around for emphasis. And the most important uh, emphasis in a sentence is the very first word. And the second most important word uh, as far as emphasis is the last word. Well, Paul brings to prayer up at front. Now, having sent three sons to college... I don't think the average parent who sends their child who is turning to a young adult to college by saying something like this, I want you to go have fun. <laughs> Call us, make wise choices, and have good friends, and if you get a chance, study a little bit. Study probably won't come last on the parents' list, right? It's certainly not last on Paul's list. Prayer isn't. It's first on his list. To prayer, devote yourselves. Everything Paul lists here in this chapter is important. But he wants to stress first and foremost, devote yourselves to prayer. This was the practice of the early church. You read in the book of Acts. This word is translated differently, but it's the same word, and it's highlighted there in gold. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There's an interesting translation of this word in Acts chapter 8, verse 13. It's not talking about prayer, but it's letting us see what the word devoted means. Simon himself believed he saw these miracles, and he was a sorcerer, and he saw the apostles do miracles. He, he believed and was baptized, and he followed everywhere. He followed Philip everywhere. The, those, that's the English translation of this Greek word. That's what it meant for him to be devoted. He's like, I'm going to follow them everywhere. Devote yourself to prayer. This verse challenges me. Does it challenge you? I'm not uninvolved in prayer by any means, but I always have to ask myself, am I devoted to prayer? Daryl Bach writes, prayer is serious disciplines. If Christians prayed with the same zeal that some people manifest to keep themselves physically fit for a longer and healthier life, they might see different results in the life and witness of the church. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says, being watchful and thankful. And I think here he's warning us against spiritual weariness. It's easy to become weary in life, sluggish in life, sluggish in prayer, 
to let the cares of the world distract us. We all have plenty of things to think about and to worry us and to burden us. And yet, in the midst of that, we are called to be watchful, to be on the lookout, to be alert, to be thankful to God. I think these things can keep us from praying. For instance, remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was about to go to the cross? What did he say to his disciples? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. And then he said, watch and pray so you will not enter into temptation or fall into temptation. The church is designed to be a house of prayer. This weekend, we had 24-hour prayer vigil from 2 on Friday to 2 on Saturday. And it was, it was just wonderful to see people come in and out. There was one... My, my community group, or some of them were going to come on Friday night, and I was also going to be here on Saturday morning some. But for one of the group's times uh, before my group was actually coming, once it got dark outside, we locked the doors just for security. So I was kind of staying out in the lobby and just uh, allowing in case there were any latecomers that, that, to come in to, to open the doors for them. And, and so as, as one group ended and another group would start, it was, just, it was just a beautiful thing to watch people who had been praying alone and together for 90 minutes to, to go out and to fellowship. And then, and then the next part of the church to come in and they leave. And then the next part of the church to come in and it, and it happened. It's It's a beautiful thing. That's what we should pray for each other, that our lives and our church, not just during 40 days, not just on a prayer vigil, but constantly will be devoted to prayer. Secondly, let's pray that God will open doors for the gospel message and we will make the most of every opportunity in wise and gracious ways. Paul links not only here, but in much of his writing, he links evangelism and mission with prayer. He doesn't see them as two things that are totally separate from each other. Verse 3, after saying, I want you to devote yourselves to prayer, notice what he says. And pray for us too. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray for us. Who does Paul mean by us? Now, sometimes an individual will say that, and rather than saying, pray for me, he might just say, pray for us. He could have been saying that, but Paul was never hesitant to say, pray for me, right? I think here he's including the team. He's including at least it would have had to include Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, and Epaphras, who he's going to mention here at the, in verses 12 and 13. In, in verse 3, Paul asked the Colossians specifically to pray for an opportunity to pro- proclaim the message. And in verse 4, that he can proclaim it clearly. So you see there's God's part and our part. Pray that God opens the doors, and when the doors open, pray that I'll be able to just to proclaim it clearly as I should. Evangelism is a team activity. Many, many believers struggle with the concept of evangelism. They get scared when they think about witnessing to other people about Christ. They 
they, they put so much pressure on themselves, like, oh, I don't have all the answers. What if they ask me this? I don't know about this or that and the other. Could it be that one of the reasons why we struggle is we think of it as only an individual responsibility and activity, that it's all up to us? And yet, in the Bible, in the New Testament, this is a team activity. Jesus sent them out how? One by one? No, two by two. The early church did that. They, they, they ministered in teams. They were, ministered in small groups. Many, maybe most of you in our church are involved in a small group of some sort, a men's group, a women's group, a community group, some, some type of group. You're already involved in a group. Maybe as a group, in addition to the way you encourage each other and support each other and help each other, maybe you could just share with each other, hey, here's some people I'd love to see become Christians. And maybe create a, a group list or something and together pray together for those people. And maybe think about ways your group can reach out and love to those people. We're not talking about a fancy program. We're just talking about doing life together and, and taking advantage of of a, of a community that already exists. Think about last summer. Last summer, there were two great team events in this church. We sent a team of people to Honduras. And we had a team of people that did vacation Bible school. Probably between the two teams, I don't know. I didn't think about a number ahead of time. It's probably 70, 80 people involved, either on that mission trip or in, in VBS. But what did they do? They, they, they didn't just go as individuals. They didn't just serve as individuals. They, they prayed together. They trained together. They served together. They laughed together. And there's just something about doing it together. Maybe we can capture that team spirit when it comes to evangelism. That we are like, hey, it's not just all up to me as an individual. That together we can reach out for Christ. Now, Colossians is one of the four letters in the New Testament that is known as a prison epistle because he was imprisoned as he wrote them. Now, it's interesting to me as we think about what Paul says when he says, pray for us that God may open a door for our ministry. He doesn't pray that God will get him out of jail. He doesn't say, Lord, please deliver me from these bad circumstances. Now, maybe, certainly, if he were to get out, uh, get free from the imprisonment that might open up more doors, and maybe that would be the way God would choose it. But if you read Philippians, for instance, we don't have time to turn it, but Philippians chapter 1, Paul said, while I'm in prison, already right now the gospel is advancing because all the people in the prison guards know that I'm here for Christ. This is what Paul is praying for, opportunity, opportunity. He's not praying for his own advantage, but he's praying for opportunities for the gospel. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then in verse 5, right in the same vein, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. One writer puts it this way, the purpose of acting wisely it's not simply to, to get a good opinion of outsiders, but to help win them to God. The silent force of righteous living can speak loudly, and the most productive evangelists are Christians 
who enter the daily mix of life and live their faith. So the idea here is we're blending wisdom with urgency. That's what make the most of every opportunity means. It means this is urgent. We're to, the word means to buy something up. <laughs> when it says make the most of the opportunity, seize that opportunity. This opportunity is going to come and it may be gone. It's like a, you know, these companies, businesses that do flash sales. You know, it's only on sale for such and such. I used to, I used to walk sometimes in the mall, um, like early in the morning, um, just when it was too cold or wet or something to exercise outside. So I'd go over to Concord Mills Mall and I'd walk the, you know, the whole deal multiple times around. And I remember one day, here, it's, it's early in the morning, I'm walking around, and the mall is not even anywhere near being open, and there's this store, and there's like this massive line of people lined up outside, like at seven-something in the morning, I think, and I don't think the mall probably opens till 10 o'clock or something like that. I, I saw it, and I think the second time around when I got back around, I thought, what are these people? So I stopped and asked one of them, what, what's going on? And it was, it was some specialty store they were about to open some new product, and it was like they were getting in line so they could buy it before it sold out. They were making the most of every opportunity, right? Well, that's the way as believers we should look at the opportunities that God gives us with people who aren't believers. We need, we need to seize those opportunities within. We need to be wise, but we need to be urgent. Wise and urgent. What a, what a great balance there. Verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So there's some guidelines about how we speak here. First of all, it's to be gracious. Unbelievers are often skeptical about Christianity, right? They're skeptical about Christians. They have this image sometimes that Christians are bullies, so be gracious in how we speak. Second, seasoned with salt. Now, that's not something we use today. That's just an idiom that referred to witty or amusing or clever speech. In this context, it was talking about seasoning the way you talk with wisdom. As it relates to witnessing, it, it, like on one extreme, it could be unkind speech. That wouldn't be seasoned with salt, right? On, there's another extreme, though. Some people are like so afraid that they may offend somebody by telling them the truth about the gospel that they're like, they won't say a word. And that is not what God is saying here either. He's saying, be wise, be urgent, but be wise and season it with salt. I agree with what David Garland says. We are not showing compassion or love if we choose to keep meekly silent and never share the truth about Christ with those who desperately need to hear it. I need to work on that. How about you? Make sure your speech is ready so that you'll know how to answer everyone. Believers need to be grounded in the faith. So this is the second way that we can pray for believers, and we can pray for our church, that, that God will open doors for the gospel, and we will make the most of those opportunities. Number three, pray that we will wrestle 
in prayer for each other to mature and be firmly established in God's will. Look at this man, Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer. Now, Epaphras used to live in Colossae, and he knows these believers. Now he is with Paul. And Paul is saying, I want to tell you something about Epaphras. He is wrestling in prayer for you. One of the most influential things in prayer for me in my whole life, and I don't, now that I say this, I don't know that I've even told the person this. Um, it wasn't somebody teaching me about prayer. It wasn't somebody doing a Bible study for me with prayer. But when I was probably a teenager, I was living at home. I remember one time my aunt and uncle from another city came to visit us and stayed in the bedroom next to mine. He was a pastor. And there was that bedroom and there was a bathroom that shared, you know, the two bedrooms shared. You could close the doors. I went into that bathroom and I could hear him praying for the people of his church. He was away, he was out of town, and he was pouring his heart out for them. That just touched me. And this is Epaphras. So when Epaphras goes to visit somewhere, he's on his knees praying for the Colossians. He's wrestling in prayer for them. Now, this isn't the casual, oh, Lord, bless so-and-so. <laughs> Lord, bless Sally, bless Liz, bless Carol, bless Rick, bless Jessica, Bless Herbert. No, this is wrestling in prayer. Let me ask you, what do you think of when you think about wrestling? <laughs> it's like, right? I mean, it's like effort, and it's, it's, it's engaging. It's intentional. It's hard. He wasn't just praying for their health and their jobs, although... If your health is bad and you need a job, certainly we will pray for you, and, and we want people to pray. Look what he was praying for, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Verse 13, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and those at Laodicea and Herapolis. Prayer's not easy. Prayer is not easy. It's blessed it's anointed, it's God's choice for us, but it's not easy. So when you think about prayer, you might think about hard work. You might think about the WWE if you think about wrestling, right? Well, we're going to start our own version of the WWE here. We're, we're, we're creating a new club today. You can sign up. You can be a part of it. You don't have to be strong physically. You don't have to be tough or mean like most of you are. That's a compliment. Just kidding. Here we go. You ready? We wrestle in prayer for each other. That's the new WWE right there. We wrestle in prayer for each other. So pray daily. 40 days. Don't let it end. Keep praying on your own. Keep praying with your families. Keep praying with your groups. 
keep praying with the whole church. When we, we come here at 1030, but let's come at 930 and pray with the church. That's 45 minutes of just prayer. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Now, that's the third thing that we want to pray for each other. Pray that we'll wrestle in prayer. But I want to make a note before we leave this book. Prayer, serving God, teamwork, and biblical community are all intricately connected. Prayer, serving God, teamwork, biblical community, they're all linked. In other words, the more we pray and serve God, teamwork, biblical community, these things happen. These, these, these are the context. They, they're linked with each other. Not, they're not separate from each other. So, so let's just walk through this list as Paul gives these greetings. They aren't just throwaways. Sometimes we think the things at the end of the New Testament letters are just throwaways. Oh, okay, I can read that really quick. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus is the one who carried the letter from Paul to them. To the Colossians, he also carried the letter to the Ephesians. He was one of Paul's companions on his final journey to Jerusalem. And verse 8 tells us about what his mission is here with the Colossians. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 9, he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Now, if you keep reading in your New Testament, the next letter past Colossians is a little letter called Philemon. And we find out from Philemon that Onesimus was a slave who ran away. He ran away from his master, and somehow Paul, God brought his path across Paul's path in jail, and he became a believer in Christ. And now Paul is no longer viewing him as a slave, but he is sending them, him back to the church as a standing with, with, as a brother. Anisipus is no longer uh, a rebel. He's a faithful and dear brother. Verse 10, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. Now, Aristarchus accompanied Paul um, to Jerusalem and to Rome. He could have been an actual prisoner. In fact, Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. So there's a possibility, and it seems on the surface that, yeah, this means he was actually imprisoned himself. But it's also possible that he wasn't charged with any crime himself, but that he was there to help Paul and support Paul and because in those days, you were allowed up to a couple of people that could come in and, and bring food for you and, and maybe even spend a night in jail with you so you wouldn't be alone. And so maybe this is why Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. And he says, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, apparently, this is the same John Mark we read about in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas were on a missionary trip, and Barnabas' cousin, Mark, had 
Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them, but Paul hesitated because Barnabas had, or John Mark had, had deserted them earlier. And he's like, no, we can't take him on this trip. And it actually led to a split in the team. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas and went a, a different direction. So there was this division. But now that, that's solved. God has solved it. And Paul is saying, yeah, welcome John Mark now. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort for me. I think Paul is making the point that these people, there are three of them named here, that they're willing to lay aside their privileges, uh, their Jewish privileges, their natural privileges, to join this radical new movement in Christ and to serve with Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We've already discussed Epaphras in, in verse 13, so let's skip to verse 14. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. We don't know much about Luke except the fact that he was a Gentile, he was a physician, um, and he was the author. He's been identified since the second century as the author of the Gospel of Luke and of the book of Acts. Demas also sends Greetings in Philemon 24. There's, there's no commendation of Demas here. Uh, but we know but by the end of Paul's ministry, unfortunately, Demas had deserted, having loved the present world. And at this point, as he's starting to wrap it up, Paul changes uh, a little bit, and he asks them to convey greetings to other Christians in the area. Laodicea was a city about 10 miles northwest of Colossae, and so he names one person specifically. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. Now, in the New Testament era, sometimes there was only one church in a city. They, they met in houses. Some places like Jerusalem, uh, there were multiple churches so the church at a certain city would consist of all these various house churches. And so we know at Colossae there were at least two. One, one church met in Philemon's house and one met in Nympha's house. She was probably unmarried or a widow, and it gave her independence and flexibility in the ancient world as far as her household. Verse 16, after this letter has been read to you, see to it, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Now, have you ever tried to open your New Testament and find Laodicean? You find Colossians, Thessalonians. We don't have a, a letter preserved in our Bible as the, in the New Testament to the Laodiceans, but there's nothing to say that Paul didn't write other letters to churches that, that we don't have recorded, or... And I, I like this idea. That may have been a reference to the letter to the Ephesians. Because Ephesians is what we call a circular letter. It, if you read Ephesians, it doesn't have all the personal greetings. It's, it's designed to be passed from church to church to church. And the fact that we already read earlier that Tychicus was involved in helping carry this, may, maybe that was the letter of Ephesians. Maybe it was a lost letter. We don't know. All we know is they knew they knew, and they were to read it. Now think with me. I've, I've gone through these names. Think with me about how this all weaves together. And I just want to make a few observations as I wrap this up. 
First, the church consists of people, not buildings, not budgets, not programs. As Paul closes this short letter to Colossians, he takes the time and energy to mention 10 people by name. Why? It's because people mattered to Paul. People matter to God. He names, in addition to those 10, some, some brothers and the church that meets at Nympha's house. People are the essence of the church. Second, the church is a place of diversity. The good news about Christ reached many different types of people at Colossae. In these people that we've read, just reading it, you have a slave and a doctor. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have men and women. You have prisoners and people who wrote the New Testament. <laughs> they were diverse. They were different, but they were one. And that's true of the body of Christ worldwide. And praise God, it's true of our expression of it here at Harvest. We don't all look alike. Third, the church is intended to be a center for healing rather than a showcase for perfection. Some people have worded it like the church is more to be a hospital than a museum, right? You don't come to the church because you've got it all together, that you're perfect. This is a place you come and get healed. There are at least three people named here that dealt with failure. Onesimus, the runaway slave. He possibly stole from his master and fled. John Mark, who deserted on a mission trip. And then Demas. So at Harvest, we have standards, and we call people to godliness, and we warn them about the choices they make and, 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 and choosing God's ways and what will happen. But we don't want people to have to think ever that you got to have it all together to be able to walk in these doors. We want to love each other and build each other up and help each other on the journey. Fourth, there's great value for work in working for the Lord and doing it together. I've already mentioned that Paul's effort was a team effort. Didn't do this all alone. And finally, prayer is a powerful component of biblical community. Prayer builds biblical community almost like nothing else does. And we've already heard about Epaphroditus. We see it in the community that Paul talks about here, praying for each other and praying for our missionaries, and telling people that you're praying for them, and telling them how you're praying for them, those are powerful ways to build community. So Harvest, keep doing it. <laughs> keep doing it. Keep praying. Be devoted to prayer. So how do, he says, 17, tell Archippus, see that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The, these are the three ways we've talked about this morning. Pray that our lives in church will be marked by devotion to prayer. So prayer, we're praying for each other and we're praying for each other to pray. We're also praying for evangelism, that God will help open doors for people and they will take the most or make the most of every opportunity and we're also wrestling in prayer for what we're wrestling in prayer for maturity three great areas 
in one area of Africa where Christianity began to spread, the converts were really zealous about their personal time with the Lord. And they would go out into the bushy areas, kind of in the wilderness there, so they could get alone and be alone with God and, and read His Word and pray. And so what would happen is, as they, as they kept walking from their little hut out into the bush, they created a trail and, and a path. And the more they went and walked, the clearer the path became. And so what happened unintentionally, their personal time with God became a testimony to others because other people could see, man, that person's path, they're, they're walking on the path. And when they might neglect it for a while and they might stop going to meet with God, guess what would happen? The path would get kind of in bad shape and they would gently and lovingly but pointedly come to each other and say, brother, sister, there's some grass growing on your path. And I want to say harvest, when it comes to evangelism, making the most of every opportunity, when it comes to prayer, let's don't let any grass grow on our path. Let's don't let any grass grow on our path. Pray that believers, specifically our church, will be devoted to prayer.